Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest, I want to say that, as you'll see from the title, it's a bit of a political podcast today. I don't do those often, but I felt that this documentary was important enough to showcase. And of course, it digs into a lot of things that are political. So if that's not your bag, then I get it. I do think it's fitting that I'm dropping this um, still in the week where Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed. She was a true icon, legend, feminist, trailblazer, really a huge loss for our country. I urge you, if you have not seen the documentary on her, it is on Hulu. You can watch it. You can learn about her career and her life and just kind of celebrate her. I hope that her death is not in vain and that inspires everybody to vote and to get involved in the political process. So I don't usually preach about this either, but I do feel that our democracy is really at stake in the biggest way it ever has been. So I urge you all with you know just a few weeks left until the election just over a month left, really, to get involved, to do everything you can to make sure that you stand up and be counted and get others to do the same. So I will get off my soapbox and introduce my guest, Dan Partland. He directed the new documentary called Unfit. So the first part of this documentary, which, by the way, you can see everywhere right now, um, and I do say this in the podcast, but if for some reason you can't afford to buy it, email me. I will send you, Venmo you the money to watch it because I really think it's important for everybody to see this. So the first half is, is really medical doctors, mental health professionals, leading Republican influencers who all talk on the record about the behavior, the psyche, the condition, and ultimately the stability of, of the president. I always put that in quotes and really gets to the question, is this guy fit to be president? Is he psychologically fit? Second half of the film I think is even more profound because it looks at his presidency in historical context of other fascist regimes and how they were able to to rise essentially and it looks also brings it up to the present looking at countries all over the world and where fascism is taking over governments and kind of putting our country in that context I think is very informative and it is scary. I I do talk about that, but again, I think so important. So Dan and I also do talk about his career as a documentarian and filmmaker and documentary series producer, television producer. He is the founder of Doc Shop Productions. Check them out. They do some really interesting stuff. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan. Okay. Well, welcome, Dan. It's great to meet you over Zoom on this Thursday morning. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Me too. So I always start with how I know my guest, and uh, we've only just met, but our mutual friend, Michael Seldish, a great producer, introduced us. Um, I I asked him for the introduction because I saw your film, Unfit, which we'll get into, and I was about a half hour in, and I thought, I, I have to interview this, whoever, I didn't even know you directed it, and then looked you up, and I realized he had told me about you in Doc Shop, and I thought, I got to get him on the podcast immediately. Thank you. Thank you. Eager, eager to get into it. There's a lot there. Yeah. So when we texted briefly beforehand, before we set it up, I, I thanked you for uh, keeping me up all night with 
horrible waking nightmares after I watched the movie. So thank you again. <laughs> uh, I was having them already, but, or, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, Maybe how are you having them already? But, uh, you know, I mean, actually, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, point that I think there's a lot of anxiety right now around politics and what's go so many different factors contributing to it. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of an ecological catastrophe. I mean, environmental crisis, fires burning everywhere. Um, so, you know, I mean, we thought about that a lot in making the film and tried to strike a tone where we were being, uh, you know, serious and putting forward serious, very concerning arguments while not being alarmist because people don't need to be any more alarmed. In fact, in, on, in some ways, if you really drill down on some of what we presented in the film, it shows that the anxiety, that raising people's anxiety actually can contribute to pushing them towards more authoritarian uh, leadership, which is, you know, kind of the end game of where the film goes. Sorry to jump to the end at the beginning, but we definitely Spoiler thought Spoiler alert, we're in a fascist regime. <laughs> yeah, but we definitely thought about, um, you know, how to tell this and how to keep it uh, something that was valuable and not just alarmist and not just needlessly ra raising people's anxiety, but trying to give them real insight into this political moment. Well, and that's the thing, because so much has been done on Trump. I mean, every single day of the last five or six years, you know, it's sort of this barrage of him, but also of analysis of analysis of him and books about him and articles analyzing him. So I thought it was interesting that your approach was more well, it was twofold, I think. It was really the psychological profile of who this guy is. And then sort of the second part of the film was sort of the extension of, okay, now that we know who this guy is, what? how does he fit in in terms of other leaders in history who may have had a similar psychological profile? And then what does it mean? So uh, why did you choose to approach it this way? Uh, you know, what was your own personal connection to the film and why you wanted to make it and then how did it come to be? Loaded yeah, question. there's a great cascade of, of, uh, of decisions and, and topics in there. So first of all, of course, the film is called Unfit, the Psychology of Donald Trump. And the reason that we wanted to get into that space is that I think, you know, me, like everyone else was consuming way too much news in the early part of the Trump presidency, just glued to it all the time. And the 24 hour news cycle seemed to just bounce from one topic to the next. And each time we're on a new topic, a new issue set would come up and we would kind of all get up to speed on that issue set, immigration, you know, whatever it was, um, Syria, um, you know, Justice Department stuff, all, all that. We would, and, and there was such an, uh, such a, a frenzy to it that it seemed like there was a sameness to each of these new crises that was coming up that wasn't being talked about. And so what we were really trying to do was take a step back from the news cycle and try to put something together that was seeing a larger picture about what was going on, not focused on the minutia of the day-to-day -day crisis, but of what were the similarities, because there did definitely seem like a sameness. And when we dug into it, yeah, the sameness was pretty clear. The sameness was the underlying psychology of Trump himself that was driving all of these crises. And there was some wonderful academic writing on the topic, and we did a deep dive into that and then started reaching out to mental health professionals who had written some really thoughtful, insightful essays on, on the topic. And we went from there. I think the, the framing of looking at the psychology of Trump isn't it's not exactly right to what the film is because there was this cascade of decisions. So 
first, it was to look at the psychology of Trump, but inevitably that that is not that interesting. Ultimately, it's one guy's psychology. It's, you know, there's a lot to be said about it, but the next thing that fell from that, we thought really obviously, was to get some insight into the psychology of the voters who who looked at him. And so we, we start with sort of the psychology of Trump himself and then progress to the psychology of the electorate that voted for him. We have to understand a little bit about ourselves. And from there, it really went inevitably, we thought, to just an understanding of a greater insight into the psychology of this moment geopolitically. Because the issue is, there have always been guys like Trump. The more interesting thing to look at is not the guy, it's the culture and why the culture, why the ground was soft for someone like that to rise to power. Because I have no question that in, in earlier eras, Trump coming, you know, making a run for the United States presidency would have been roundly defeated. But there was such an, a, an energy for, um, for overthrowing the mainstream, for overthrowing the norm, such frustration with business as usual. And I think you saw that in you know the success of both Trump's candidacy and the Sanders candidacy. But there, as we dug deeper into what moments in history, what was going on in different moments in history when authoritarianism rose, what we saw is that authoritarianism, sadly, is on the rise all over the globe right now. It is on every continent, um, particularly this the current brand of right-wing authoritarianism is it's it's safe to say that it's sweeping the world. And the fact that it has more than just a toehold in the United States, it has actually control of the administrative, uh, the executive branch and, and a good bit of the Congress um, is an alarming fact indeed, not just because of what's possible, but what it tells us about, you know, what our state is right now, where we're at, where all of us are at emotionally and psychologically, that there was such a um, receptiveness to this kind of authority. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was the part when you, the way that you framed it throughout, like you just said was, that's the thing. Like I follow everything. I read so much. I watch everything. And I think that what your film's able to do so well is contextualize everything that we know into this larger tapestry of history and what's going on around the world. And that is honestly what kept me up at night because the words that still ring in my ear as one of the subjects said, you know, I think it was Plato that said that every democracy is eventually going to end up in autocracy. And that really just gave me chills for some reason more than anything, because in a way it's sort of like, was this moment inevitable? And we've just been, you know, like sheep or just lucky that we've just been able to enjoy what we've always just assumed was our right, you know, a democracy. Yeah, I, I think we've been... Um we've, we've been a little bit relaxed, you know, our, our, our defenses were down. I think we believed that, um, the institutions we were building were so solid that there was no taking them down. I actually think it it touches on a lot of things. I think it touches on the way we teach history and the way we talk about history. I think that when, you know, there are these moments throughout history when there have been these colossal, um, atrocities, um, failures of, of, uh, humanity really. I mean, from, you know, slavery, um, to, you know, world war II, you know, fascism, Nazism, uh, 
McCarthy, seemingly a, a, a psychosis, a public psychosis where, where people are just acting in a, uh, in, in a manner really inconsistent with their expressed values, Jim Crow South, et cetera, so forth. Even, even the way, um, uh, even, you know, the gay rights issue, how that was handled in this country until relatively recently. And when, when we teach them, we really teach them as uh, a thing of the past, because it's nice to feel like those things are backward and old fashioned and that we have progressed beyond that. It's a, it's a great story. We all feel enlightened. But the problem is that I think there's a truer telling of that history, which says that the, these kinds of atrocities, particularly um, this issue of authoritarianism and in-groups and out-groups and how humans, when they are feeling under threat, it just is their nature to divide into groups like this, and these groups can be really toxic, and they're really capable, the humans, us, are really capable of doing really horrific things to one another if they perceive, um, you know, if they perceive one group having a different goal and objective, or, or really, if they perceive that group as a threat to their group. Right. And I think, God, there's so much we could get into, but I, what you just said, it's just, it's been so much more distilled because of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, where we're sort of becoming this even more than ever before in the last four or five years, just so polarized. But I do want to get back to the origin where you start the film, which is this whole diagnosis of Trump. What I find really interesting is that my dad's a psychologist. And when, you know, he kind of started to come around, it became more clear, Trump, that he was going to be the nominee. You know, I think I read, okay, he's a malignant narcissist. And I immediately said to my dad, so he's a malignant narcissist, right? MPD, he's borderline personality, right? You know, and my dad's like, you know, we got to be careful. But, um, you know, politics aside, my dad's a total liberal. But he said, like, you know, I I don't want to die. You can't really diagnose somebody without really knowing them and spending time with them. But what I think was so spot on, one of the, I don't remember who, um, one of your subjects said, actually, it's much more useful to diagnose somebody by watching their behaviors and actions than to actually interview them sort of as a client because people lie, people show their best selves. So actually our, the diagnosis is, is much more applicable in this context. So I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about what the traits of malignant narcissism are and how those relate to uh to trump well let, let's let's do a little piece that ha- happens uh, before that kind of in in i think your dad is absolutely right to be wary of uh armchair diagnoses particularly affecting you know politics and public figures and stuff like that i think that stuff yeah, i think people are right to be wary of that um but american elections tend to be really thorough and exhausting exhaustive vetting of candidates and you really feel like you go through this they go through this grueling process of running for president for so many years that all parties have weighed in you've heard from everybody um but that didn't really happen in 2016 there was one important group that was muzzled that was denied the opportunity to speak about this and this was mental health professionals the apa american psychiatric association uh had reissued guidelines. These guidelines were in place already, but they they sort of reaffirmed them during the 2016 election and made it very clear that they didn't want any of their memberships in this professional organization uh, to speak out about political candidates. And they knew 
they knew this was an issue because they knew that there was a lot of very troubling behavior on display from Donald Trump and that certainly mental health professionals were starting to raise an eyebrow and some of them growing very, very concerned. And they, they leaned all this, they, they tied this uh, prohibition on speech about this to the Goldwater Rule, which is a, a rule from the 1970s based on a very famous case from the 1964 election when uh, Fact Magazine published an article, 1,100 or so mental health professionals commenting that they thought that Barry Goldwater was unstable. They, Barry Goldwater was not unstable. Um, the case that was made against him was very poor and it was really embarrassing to the profession. And they put this ethical guideline in place that they don't want that done. The problem is that the, the, the mental health professionals who were commenting on Goldwater back in the 60s, they were commenting in the, mostly in the style of Freudian analysis that was very big at the time um, and, you know, still important. Um, and they, they were commenting on his inner emotional life. And that is really, that is wrong. That is a needless politicization of mental health. I mean, you don't know what's in somebody's heart, what's in their soul from, you know, from the outside. But what the way we do diagnose behavioral disorders is from observing behavior. And so the psychiatrists, the mental health professionals in, in this film, um, they really limit their commentary on observable behavior. And this is exactly the diagnostic paradigm for talking about behavioral disorders. So the sort of overarching thesis um, that is put forward in, by some of the mental health professionals in the film is that Trump is a malignant narcissist. Now, I hate when that gets used casually as you know a name calling thing. Obviously, I don't think politicizing mental health is a good idea. I also think it's very important to recognize that some you know, mental, mental health diagnoses are common. A lot of them are benign. A lot of them are personal you know, uh, difficulties and in no way affect somebody's ability to do the job. So the question is, though, it, is this a diagnosis that is, that is compatible or incompatible with the job of president? And truth be told, malignant narcissism is not a diagnosis itself. It's kind of a constellation of diagnoses that are put together. It's a concept developed by Eric Fromm, who was a legendary um, a psychiatrist who survived Nazi Germany and devoted his career to trying to understand Hitler and, and the evil within uh, humans. And he came up with this um, scheme, and it, it's a combination of four disorders, behavioral disorders. One is narcissistic personality disorder, two, antisocial personality disorder, three, paranoia, and four, sadism. And the film goes into detail about how you would make those diagnoses and talks about what evidence we have for um, qualifying Trump in each of those categories. Okay, let's take it a step further because I'm sure this came up at least behind the scenes. I've done a lot of work just in my little world with psychopaths and sociopaths. And I, I don't know that every malignant narcissist is a psychopath. I certainly think that he checks off the psychopathy checklist and now finding out that, you know, he knowingly let hundreds of thousands or at least tens of thousands of people die during the pandemic, the kids in cages, you know, he's clearly a serial predator with women. I mean, there's so many 
psychopathic traits. And I wondered if you danced with that at all with your team in terms of, you know, do we go as so far to call him a psychopath? Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, we talked about all of these things again, as a documentarian, I think, you, you know, my goal, what one's goal, it's not exactly to just express my own thoughts and feelings. It's to sort of put together, um, the perspectives, the, the most valuable perspectives from across the spectrum of people who are more expert than I in these topics. So I, I would never sort of wade into that debate about, you know, psychopathy versus sociopathy. But did it come, but did it come up? I guess what I'm asking is, did it come up with any of the experts that you talked sure. to? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We definitely, we definitely um, did a lot of material that is not in the film that talks about about that issue and whether whether he would be classified as a psychopath or not. I mean, I think that the overarching, the most the most important um, factor to understanding Donald Trump, I think, really does emanate from his antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy, which I'll just read because I, I just pulled it up. But um, a, a little distillation of what that is: antisocial personality disorder, disregard for others, often marked by deceit law-breaking, lying, manipulation, impulsivity, lack of moral conscience, and lack of remorse. Check, 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 check. <laughs> this is the one that, yeah. this is wow. the one that, you know, it, it, it's, it's the one that is most um, uh, aligned with that lack of empathy. I think lack of empathy comes up in, in several of these. But, um, but the, it, you are capable, human beings are capable of really awful things if they are you know, totally without empathy. Empathy is really a, I mean, there's a great argument for why it was necessary evolutionarily, but it's what holds us together. We, we do have the ability to sort of put ourselves in each other's shoes and feel for one another. And if you just don't have that at all, you really have a tremendous power to, of brutality, really, to be brutal. Yeah. And I think that when that conflates or when that intersects with power. Like I, I was watching um, Michael Cohen on Rachel Maddow last week and I don't know, she asked it or he brought it up, but you know, Michael Cohen aside, but what he said was interesting, which was, you know, he's changed. Trump has changed. He wasn't always this bad. So I thought that was interesting too, that it's, you know, you give somebody with this disorder, with malignant narcissism or however you characterize it, all of this power and then just the worst the worst instincts come out across the board because their ego is so fed with this narcissism, you know? Well, look, I, I mean, I think the, the, um, in, in some senses, um, well, let's, let's talk about the narcissistic personality disorder because I think those two together, antisocial and narcissistic personality disorder. And again, this is different from just run of the mill narcissism. People right. have a healthy amount of narcissism. That's fine. It's where it, it's where they have an inability to keep that in check at all is where it becomes pathological. So here's a little distillation of narcissistic personality disorder. An inflated sense of self-importance, excessive need for adoration, arrogance, entitlement, and hypersensitivity to any form of criticism. So, you know, I think that the classic example of what you were driving at of how, um, how of what kind of brutality is possible um, if you just really don't care about others, is the um, is the family separation policy at the border. I mean, that the more we learned about that, you know, at, at first there was a suggestion that maybe that was a smart 
policy because of the mechanics of how would you manage this and people are using kids to try to get a as a scheme. But what we found out in the fullness of time is that this was an explicit um, design, designed to uh, create it to horrify potential um, you know, uh, families who were looking to come to the United States is that if they, if the word got out that their children would be taken from them, that that would be an effective deterrent. And just think about like, I think we viewed it through this, you know, we, we viewed it while deep in the sort of debate about immigration. But if you take a step back and you hear how this sounded to the rest of the world, and I think how it would sound to us if we weren't in this pitched political debate, um, the president of the United States made the decision. It, it's like a like an evil fairy tale kind of thing, like a Hansel and Gretel thing. Like we will take the children from families. We will separate them. They cannot get their children back if they come here without appropriate this and that. And, and by the way, they weren't coming without appropriate. They were coming. Right. I mean. Coming. Yeah. Look, the, the scarier thing in a way here is that, like, I don't believe that was his idea. I don't I think he's too uh, stupid to actually even architect an idea. It was, you know, the architect is considered Stephen Miller and some of the nefarious people in his inner circle. And that is always the thing that shakes me the most, which is a whole uh, you know, other thing is just the enabling and, and the horrible forces that he surrounds himself with that just, you know, again, make him his worst self. So it's just, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. But one thing that I think is really important, Bill Crystal in your film, who's a conservative, um, and I want to get into sort of how you shaped it through a lot of these conservative voices, never Trumpers, Lincoln project, duty to warn. He says something that, you know, I think is spot on, which is that people who dismiss Trump, which happens all the time is he's an idiot. He's a buffoon. He's a charlatan. The problem is that really doesn't address how dangerous he is. And it's actually not giving him enough credit. And I agree with that. I think when I said before he's stupid, I think he's stupid and he's also smart. And that's the scary part. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in this film. People are, are always asking what, uh, you know, who the intended audience is, because of course, you know, um, we knew we were making it. Some people would say, oh, you're preaching to the converted. Nobody who needs to hear this stuff is going to watch this film. But that, you know, we, we did think about that a lot. We were not trying to preach the converted. We were trying to do two things. One, I think we were trying to put new language and a new framework out there into the public discourse. So even if, if the people who were consuming it were predominantly people who already uh, were not fans of Trump's, at least we were talking about this more important issue. We weren't just talking about the crisis of the day. We were talking about a sort of macro framing of what the real danger is. That was one of the goals. But the other goal was, you know, we did try to really aim the, the film squarely at this very narrow, narrow percentage. Maybe it's, it used to be 20%. Maybe it was 10% in 2016 or five, maybe two and a half percent of undecideds of people who are actually reachable. Because I was meeting a lot of people while we were making the film who, who were from, uh, let's just say purple communities or even um, very, you know, right-leaning communities. And they didn't like Trump, but they were going to vote for him anyway because they didn't really see the danger. And they saw that, you know, 
maybe they were Republicans and they don't like Trump, but they want to vote for Republicanism and for all the, the sort of policy packages that they see as going with that. And then uh, other, you know, just political moderates, non-ideological people who just felt like, well, you know, can't argue with a good economy. Um, you know, I don't like his style. I don't like his tactics, but you know, if the economy is, is banging, what, you know, who cares? So we were definitely aimed at that narrow sliver. And, you know, to that end, we really only have, you know, we always say the film is nonpartisan, which it is. We, we don't have, there's no policy discussion for what one side or another wants. It's decidedly anti-Trump, but not partisan. It, it only, we only interviewed, uh, you know, Republicans, maybe they're not Republicans at the moment, but a lot of them were lifelong Republicans. We, um, you know, we didn't interview the, the scholars, the mental health professionals and the scholars, we didn't ask them any political questions. We asked them mental health questions and, and historical questions. But um, anyone who was speaking in the political realm, those were all conservatives. And that was important to me because I think it's just otherwise too easy to just, you know, in a polarized time to find anti-Trumpers who are going to say anything. But these were people who you could be really confident were diehard conservatives and believe in a conservative agenda and just see the danger uh, that Trump has to the democracy. Has it reached the intended audience? Please tell me there's people that you know about who they said, you know what, I saw this and it changed my mind. You know, I don't know if we, I don't know if we have those stories yet. I, what we do have is a lot of people saying, um, I did, this opened my eyes to something that I hadn't seen before. You know, maybe they were already anti-Trump, but, um, and I'm, and I'm going to share this with my family. There's people in my family who don't like Trump, who I think would be moved by this. And that's really, I mean, that's, that's the sweet spot. That's what we're at. That's where we want to be. We want to be, it's going to take voter, you know, audience who maybe are predisposed to the message to watch it themselves, because I don't think that, you know, a, a Trump voter, even a, even one who's on the fence may be likely to pick up this title on their own, but maybe with, um, with a little urging from uh, friends and family who know that they're fence sitters in, in a sense, uh, maybe they will watch. There were a few, you know, when when it wasn't, when I wasn't sort of like, you know, fetal position under the blanket. Um, I was, I, I, I was moved um, by a few things. George Conway uh, talking about his experience with his Filipino mother when he was younger, and sort of relating that to the question of whether or not Trump is a racist. I thought was really moving. Also, some laughs. I, I wondered how many times you laughed in the edit bay every time Scaramucci said Zeitgeist. So that was, that, that made me laugh. Um, and I love the golf stuff. I, it was interesting that you, I, I wonder what made you, uh, and by the way, phenomenal job on the, on the animation, which reminded me of the golf stuff. I actually, uh, found the guy on Instagram cause I was so impressed. And I just said like, great job. Cause I, I was just blown away at how good, how good the animation was. But, but the golf stuff was so interesting because what made you include that particularly? Because I, I, I really enjoyed that section. Well, thanks for the shout out to Alan Mosquito who did the animation. He he did do a great job. I, that was really important. Um, both the the sort of tone, the animation, and this goes with the um, golf segment and the Rick Riley. I wouldn't want people who are hearing this to be like, oh my God, I don't want to watch that film because it's going to be so bleak and so boring. Right. I'm going to have to open up a vein. We, it was important that the film be accessible to everyone. It's very, you know, 
it's it's dense cerebral material and that can be deadly and we didn't we wanted it to be uh and something that was you would actually choose to do with an hour and a half of your time 83 83 and a half minutes of your time um and it's i think it is a good watch on that that level and part of it is yeah you have of course you have to have opportunities to laugh i mean we need them when we, when we started making the film i think the political environment was a lot less bleak you know the pandemic hadn't happened yet um and i and we really felt like look for whatever we're going to say about trump we could really we could do something really good by starting the film by inviting everyone to have a laugh at Trump's expense because Lord knows we, we could use a laugh and he's a laughable character, even for his supporters. I mean, my God, the, the thing, so that, you know, the main title sequence kind of rolls through the context of the moment or what we saw as the context and it would really amounts to, you know, it's a bit of a, it's animated over the greatest hits of, you know, Trump, ridiculous Trump comments that we've seen before. And just to really create the context of, of the moment. Um, and then as far as Rick Riley and, you know, his commentary on golf, I think, I, I think Rick did something really amazing. Um, I read the books, you know, most of the people in the film have, you know, books pertinent to this. And I read all the books in some ways, and I've read so many Trump books, I have to stop. I'm like an addict to, to these to these books. And, you know, I got to put other inputs in my mind. But Rick Riley's book is in some way the, the, the ultimate takedown book because it's so surprising. It's hysterically funny. And it's born from, you know, Rick is a sports writer, particularly a golf writer and a golf enthusiast. And he's known Trump for 30 plus years and played a lot of golf with him. He knew Trump. He knows Trump better than probably anyone else who was interviewed in the film. And uh, he really does an, a brilliant job of extrapolating from the small thing what you can learn about someone from playing golf with them about what it tells you about their character and their persona persona. And um, when I read that book, I was very envious because I felt like, wow, you know, in some ways the, you know, going at it from this oblique and surprising angle is just so effective. You really get to the end of that book and you've had a lot of laughs, but you've gained a lot of insight into Donald Trump. And uh, I think he makes the case as well as anybody about how profoundly um, disturbed and, and unfit for this job Donald Trump is. Yeah. And I learned about a motorized golf cart that only Trump has. I mean, I, I played, my husband's a huge golfer. So I, I played that section for him and, and he's like, I know all about it. I'm like, did you know about the motorized golf cart though? <laughs> oh my God. All right. Two more questions about the film. Then I want to get into your career a little bit. Um, so I was wondering about, you know, there's a lot of debate with him about whether um, he has dementia, is he in cognitive decline? So here's, I guess a little bit of a mystery for me. I found some clips online that seemed like they were from the movie, but I, and then I was like, did I miss them in the movie? Did I space out and not see them? So were there extras that you guys put online about that? We have, we have, we have released some extra clips some sort of cutting room floor type stuff. And one of them, uh, Dr. Gardner talks about Trump's cognitive decline. We have quite a lot of material on that. Um, you know, that that's an example of something that, um, you know, we we wanted to speak to mental health professionals about what they thought was most important, and um, and you know decide in, in the course of the edit and our own research, you know, which things were appropriate to include. I think uh, I think that the you know Dr. Gartner has a a very well laid out case for 
believing that Trump may be experiencing some cognitive decline. I think that uh, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Dr. Gartner, and I think he should absolutely be telling that story. It, we felt like it didn't fit in the film for a lot of big and small reasons. One is that it really isn't, um, that is something that is harder to assess without a clinical um, experience. You know, right. He, and we already know he knows man, woman, camera, TV, you know, so we know he's oh, yeah. fine. Well, we, have a, we have a hysterical section about what the mocha <laughs> test actually is, which is the one where you have to right. um, the, the Trump thinks was an IQ test. You know, he passed, <laughs> passed it with flying colors. I mean, all Genius. it just designed to do is, is assess whether you're disoriented or whether you're basically, you know, grounded in reality. Um, but yeah, the, the Gartner has looked very carefully at speech patterns and syntax and, and all that. And, compared- and how it's changed over the years, which I thought was interesting. And also something you didn't touch on, which I get it. But, you know, of course, I've rabbit holed into many times as drug use and how that fits into all of this. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation, sometimes firsthand accounts, if you believe them, that he's basically been a speed and Adderall addict for decades and that that all is come together. So alleged, 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 but you know, no, all, I have no insight. Into it. I, I too have heard those, those discussions. I, I have no insight into it. Or Yeah. Okay. One more, one more question. Cause I, I just have to ask, and I understand if you don't want to answer, but I have in my notes that, you know, I was really moved by George Conway saying at the end of the film that, you know, what you do is you teach your kids to be honest and you pursue the truth. And how can we tell them to look up to Trump, you know, right. so you you know what my question's going to be, right? No, you don't know. <laughs> How is he married to Kellyanne Conway? What is going um, on there, Dan? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I presume to have insight into that. All, all I can tell you is that um, I think, you know, George has become a bit of a friend. I definitely have great uh, respect and admiration for him. I have no doubt that they're, you know, they're a real family and they're working through whatever they're working through. And, um, you know, I wish them, I wish them a lot of luck. I will say, you know, just from not, and this is not with any special information, but I think you have to understand um, Kellyanne in, in some way as just what a, what an amazing kind of roller coaster that is. If you're a career political operative and you become the first woman to run a major political campaign and your job is to get Donald Trump elected and you decide to campaign heavily in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and other blue stronghold states and you successfully flip them and you get your guy elected and that gets you an office in the White House. I get, I kind of understand why if that's, you know, that's like a, the, the ultimate accomplishment. You pulled off the true black swan event in American political history. Um, I, I kind of understand why that would be really, really hard to let go. Um, of course, I think, you know, one can only speculate at what her view from inside looks like. And, you know, you have to ask yourself whether, you know, matter how much you were proud of your accomplishment and what, and, and, and what was done as a political operative of whether, of how, you know, what's going on inside there and whether your conscience is okay with sticking with it. Um, but I, I don't have any, you know, any insight on that topic. I, I think it's 
obviously a point of fascination for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm sure just extremely difficult for them to go through whatever they're going through in, in such a under the public eye. Okay. All right. I'm not going to crack that. Not today, but I appreciate the answer. So again, just incredible job on the film. I, I, I know how, how much of an undertaking that is to direct and produce a film like that. You're also not just doing that. You're running a whole company. You're doing other things, other shows. How were you, how are you able to do that? Well, I certainly <laughs> had to scale back a lot of other things. I, Look, I think um, that one of the challenges of this film is that we knew from the beginning that it was going to be an indie production the whole way through. That, you know, when you get, I did a lot of indie films in the 90s and uh, I'm very proud of them. Those were very, very hard. I was a, you know, upstart pipsqueak and you were just, you passion projects, you're going to deter, you're determined to succeed one way or another and you just get it done through force of will and just your own labor. And I love that stuff and I feel like I, you know, I still have some of those skills, but, you know, when you find a little bit of success and the more you are, you know, in, you're able to work and get your projects financed through industry sources, that's, it tends to be a nicer way to go. You know, there's a lot <laughs> yes, of it does. suffering to get them made. <laughs> uh, but we knew that this one wasn't going to be that. I mean, we tried, of course, but it was clear. I mean, just look at the polls. I mean, Trump has an enduring 40% support and, so what, you know, major broadcaster or studio is going to go out and make something, I mean, from either a business perspective or a brand protection right, perspective, right. Like if you knew that 40% of the audience was off the table, I mean, that would, you know, that could, that would line through a bunch of projects. And then if you knew that on top of that, there might be some, some jeopardy, some brand jeopardy of appearing to be in one camp or another, and they really want to serve everyone. So we knew that it was very unlikely that there would be, um, you know, any industry support for it. And we were going to, it was going to be an uphill climb the whole way. And I also think that a lot of people assumed that the, the project was kind of a gonzo political hit job. I mean, I think people, even when they see the poster, they still, a lot of people will assume that. Um, and I don't know what to say about that, except that um, I think that, when we were first starting it, it sounded a lot more gonzo to people than it does now. I think that we've been saying the same thing for a few years now in the process of raising money and people believing that this was extremism and alarmism. And uh, now that the election is rolling around, I actually think um, there's a lot of people who are hearing this and, and who have come to it on their own or are coming to it now. Yeah, I always, I always, I hope that's true. I, I always think sort of like the home run of a career or at least a career in unscripted or documentaries is sort of being able to match, you know, passion and commerce. And so I hope that it is doing well because I know, you know, distributing it, like you said, that that route can be challenging. Um, but, but certainly to be able to, you know, if you, if you had to end your career tomorrow, God forbid, you know, to, to say like, I, I plowed ahead, you know, with no, no real budget and trying to raise money. I mean, I know how all that is. It's really hard, especially like you said, when you're used to just getting the budget and making the thing, you know? So, so kudos to you for, for, you know, really doing something important that you felt passionate about. I think that obviously that if you get, can get some type of at least financial break, even then there's a, a real feeling like 
you know, okay, I, I at least didn't have to suffer for my art, which is, which is nice. So talk about some of your other series. I know, I know that you did American style for, uh, for CNN, which is fantastic. And I believe you did an oxy- the oxygen special on Rebecca Zaha, which, which I saw, which was really, really well done, really harrowing story. Um, what is it that you personally gravitate toward in terms of the stuff that you want to make and, you know, what, anything you could talk about that you're working on now? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, um, I really started my career just as a verite guy and was interested in just doing verite. I worked at a company called Nasal's Films. They were some of the pioneers. And I feel like I got, you know, great insight and training from there. And a lot of people at that company are still kind of my, in some ways, foundational work family. Um, And, but yeah, I just, you know, in that, in that era, I mean, I, I think when I was growing up, documentaries were a very dusty, antiquated form, you know, and there were a lot of uh, very dry historical talking heads, archival docs. And some of them were very, very good, but it, it had become a really, it had become a, like medicine. People thought of documentaries as medicine, you know, that it was good for you, but it didn't really taste good. Like, just watch this because you'll get something, you know, and it's PBS and it all felt earnest and, and too earnest for, to be any fun. And uh, so I really came up, you know, looking to, you know, when I was in college, I got really excited by documentary and felt like after you get turned on by nonfiction, you start to look at all the scripted fare and it just looks so hokey, it's so broad and, you know, kind of simplistic. And does anybody really care about this or take this seriously? And I just thought it was the, the form of the future and, and, um, but it was going to take a lot of growing up for audiences to actually see nonfiction as something that they would choose to do with their time because it had gotten such a bad rap for being a kind of educational format. Um, and so, yeah, when I came up, that was it. I was like trying to do stuff that would be alive and vibrant and that people would actually watch for, you know, use their, their few, you know, leisure hours to, to watch that, to, and, and that it would be valuable entertainment, you know, it would be entertainment, but they wouldn't just be empty calories. I mean, I love watching the thing where the, you know, the, you got to stop the nuclear bomb. The film is going to, you know, the, the, the planet's going to blow up. He's got to get there in time. I mean, I like that also. That's great. That, that I'm, I'm not really meaning to dig on scripted fare, but, um, but nonfiction just seemed to me like, um, was more speaking to the time. And so I did a show, um, a verite show called American High, um, which was, which was a, ahead of its time. It was a, it was, yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a progenitor of what a lot of um, reality became. So, you know, what's interesting, I came, uh, is that I, I got offered this show by A&E that was already up and running. It was called Intervention. It was a show about um, addiction and families dealing with addiction. And that was really a, a major experience. I was, I did about 150 episodes. Wow. Show I think in the second season and did it for 14 or 15 seasons, something like that. And that was what you're talking about in a sense. It was merit, the marriage of commerce and, and a passion and, and also civic mindedness because we were very proud of what we were saying to the world of what we were telling people because addiction really had been under a rock before then. And it's so pervasive and people's literacy about what it is and how it works was so poor. 
Um, so we we're happy with what we were telling people, but we were also having like a real concrete, we were using the, the power of the commerce to have real concrete impact on the actual uh, subjects' lives, the, the participants themselves, because treatment centers were willing to trade out um, free treatment in exchange for um, the exposure. And they, for them, it worked too, in the same way of sort of marriage, marriage of commerce and goals is that they want people to hear about their facilities. They want people to know that there's help available. Um, so that was really, a, uh, quite an exciting project on that level. And I think during the years I was there, we did 225 interventions and, and so it's on still going, of, right. Isn't the back show now? Still yeah, it's yeah. back now and, and doing very well. I mean, I think, um, you know, in the height of uh, that show, we got about a thousand submissions a week. People, wow. who, and you know, one, and we would read them all, and one is more heartbreaking than than the next. And so, you, we had a that was a really valuable thing, I think. And I actually think it moved the national discussion about addiction because, really, prior to that show, I mean, addicts, you know, all depictions of addicts were really um, they were the bad guys in shows. And even the public policy towards addicts was that it was mostly handled as a, a matter of criminality. And now it's really handled as a matter of public health. Yeah, that show is, yeah, it was quite something. And, and I haven't watched it in a long time, but back in the day I did watch it. It's, it's one of the best, especially just like a genre breaker. So can you talk about anything you're working on now or bucket list stuff that you want to work on? There's a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of new stuff coming coming soon. There's nothing that I want to hype. Everything is kind of too far out from that. Mostly I want to keep the focus on getting people to go see hashtag unfit, the psychology of Donald Trump. Yes. And um, where can people see it? Well, they can see it. It's right now it's live on, I think, 17 different platforms. Most cable Whoa. carriers have it. Um, most oh, satellite carriers have it. It's on the major streaming platforms. Um, certainly, um, uh, Apple TV, iTunes, and Amazon are all selling it. Fandango now, Voodoo, uh, Google Play, Microsoft, they all have it. Um, and that was a coup in itself, very hard to get it placed on that many, but we want it to be maximally available. It's only six bucks for most people. Um, and if you can't afford it, to email me, I'll Venmo you the six bucks. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's like whatever it takes you need to, I, I really but, do think people need to see this. And again, like you said, hopefully, quote unquote, the right people need to see it. But either way, you need to know what we can't be sitting ducks, you know. And I think that, again, putting it in this larger historical context was really helpful to me to know exactly what we're dealing with here. And, and hopefully this will be in the rearview mirror. But I think what your film tells us is that, you know, he also is a symptom. He, he's not it's not just getting Trump out of office. There's there's so much so much more. And I think that you really effectively illustrate that incredible job. Thank you for, for making it and, and distributing it at, at an important time. But, you know, now we're, I think 48 days out, everybody vote. <laughs> Anything vote. you want to add before we, we wrap? Everybody vote. You can, um, you can see the film on those platforms. You can come to unfitfilm.com if you need more information. Um, but uh, everybody vote. I think the, um, and I think if you're if you're one of the few out there who's still a fence sitter or you're friends with somebody who is, um, this is certainly worth watching. I think it's an entertaining hour and a half, but a very thought provoking one and, and one that um, I think 
I hope families can have a healthy conversation at the end. Of. Yes, me too. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for, for making the film. Thanks for doing the interview. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. 